Good morning. It's my great privilege and honor to be here this morning to deliver this message to you that the Lord's put on my heart. And I just make one request as you nod your heads no and make confused faces. <laughs> as you're evaluating me this morning, um, I pray that you make that secondary to, to hearing the word because um, it's really important that we get this. I know that um, I would much rather have you live out what we're going to talk about today then vote for me for this position. So let's focus on, focus on the message. Um, put an outline in your bulletins, along with all those other papers that you have, if you want to take notes. It is double-sided, <laughs> but hopefully we'll be able to uh, get through this and it doesn't feel too long. With that said, I'd like to jump right into the sermon. And I'd like to begin with... A, an account of a historical event. This is a true story. It took place in 42 B.C. We're in 42 B.C. And Julius Caesar has just been assassinated. And the Roman Empire is in the midst of a civil war. It's split down the middle. The eastern half of the empire is controlled by Caesar's assassins, the traitors, Marcus Brutus, Etu Brute. And the western half of the empire still lies under the control of those who were loyal to Caesar, led by Mark Anthony. Mark Anthony. Now, I'd like to put us into the shoes of a Roman legionnaire. Now, you have had to make a decision who you're going to support. Are you going to be seduced by the promise of riches and wealth and the bribes that the assassins have um, put forth to the legions, or are you going to remain loyal and uphold the code that you've sworn to to defend Caesar and Rome itself? And so, having trained for years and being uh, disciplined in the peak physical, mental condition, you, you decide that you are going to remain loyal and stay with your brothers in arms who, who are standing and fighting for the unity of Rome. Meanwhile, Lots of others go off and take the bribe and are seduced to join the assassins. And so as you march off to war, you're fighting people who you love side by side, who you used to fight side by side with. And as, as the final battle begins, as you come to the final battle right outside of the city of Philippi, you know a couple of things. You know that one, you are outnumbered. The enemy is far more numerous than you. They also have a better position. They have had time to dig in and fortify themselves, and so tactically, you're in a bad position. But most importantly, you also know that your unit that you've been fighting with for years has stayed intact, and you know you have training and discipline on your side. You are keeping to the code of conduct that governs your behavior on the battlefield and off as well. And so as the battle begins, I want us to kind of picture one of these epic battle scenes in the movies, in the Lord of the Rings or Braveheart or pick whatever epic movie you want. And that's, that's the scene that we have here. There are tens of thousands of soldiers rushing into combat. And as the enemy horde advances upon your line, you prepare for them and stand firm and, and accept their attack. And you're fighting them and fighting them, but there's so many. You, you, you start falling back and you're driven back and, 
and you're taking losses. You're, you're, they're taking losses as well, but you can't withstand the brunt of their attack. And so as you fall back, you, you think back on your training, and you think back on all of the war games that you've played, and you remember, okay, we have to regroup. We have to counterattack. And so your unit does that, and you regroup, and you counterattack, and to make a long story short, you outflank them, and you eventually defeat them. Despite their overwhelming numbers, you defeat them. And you drive right to their leadership, and you cut off the heads of the assassins. <laughs> now, after the victory, after the war is over, Mark Anthony rewards his troops. He rewards his troops, and he gives them a large sum of money, and he honorably discharges them from service in the Roman legions, making one request. He says, please stay in the city of Philippi. We're going to make this a brand new Roman colony, and we want you to be here to defend it. And so you do, as well as many other soldiers. And over the years, Philippi becomes a favorite retreat for retired Roman soldiers, where they would oftentimes take up posts in the city guard, or as jailers in the jails. Now, that's kind of background to color what we're going to be studying today a little bit. Let's fast forward a couple millennia. A couple of years ago, my brother went through the United States Military Academy at West Point, and he went through four years of training, learning how to be a soldier, learning how to conduct himself as an officer. And when he was commissioned, on his commissioning day, he said these words, In justifying and fulfilling the trust placed in me, I will conduct my private life as well as my public service so as to be free from impropriety and the appearance of impropriety. This was part of the code of conduct that he pledged himself to. And when he became an arranger a couple years later, he made a similar pledge. Now, Codes of conduct are not something that are particular to the military. We, in this country, are surrounded by them and live by them every day. If you are a licensed professional, you have a code of ethics that governs the way you practice your profession. If you are a student, there is a student handbook that, that tells you how you need to live. If there is a, you're an employee for an employer, they have a handbook. All the local, state, and federal laws are all different codes of conduct that govern our lives, which we need to live by. Now, we who are Christians also have a code of conduct. And the Bible describes that to us all throughout its pages. And I think is best summed up by Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 39, when he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Later, Jesus modified the second part of that command during the Last Supper when he said, This is my commandment. You shall love one another as I have loved you. Now, if you're like me, you appreciate practical instruction. You, you want to be told how to do it. And sometimes when I read about loving God and, and loving my neighbor, I think, okay, that's, that's good stuff, but how do I do it? 
And so what the Lord has put on my heart this morning is to go through a passage where I think Paul describes to us some practical ways for how we can live the Christian code of conduct and how we can do that collectively as a church body. And so if you would turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, that's going to be our main text today. We're going to be studying Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. And as you're turning there, let me pray. Holy Spirit, I just pray right now and ask you to just control me, speak through me, Lord. Um, I just want to be a messenger for you and deliver the message that you have for your people. Father, prepare our hearts, prepare our minds, keep us focused and attentive, and I pray that these words would sink deep into our hearts, that we would live them out every day. Amen. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Now, before we begin our exploration of this of this passage, I want to give us the context so we have a proper understanding. Paul is in prison. He's in Rome and he's in prison and he is writing to the Philippian church, a church that he founded several years earlier during his second missionary journey, which we can read about in Acts chapter 16. Now, the Philippian church is made up of both Jewish and Gentile believers, one of them being a jailer, likely a retired Roman soldier, who became a believer when, when Paul was in the jail. And so Paul is writing to this church, and it's very important to remember that he's writing to this church collectively as one body. I know that when I read Paul's epistles to the churches, Galatians, Ephesians, Corinthians, etc., sometimes I forget that he's writing to the body of believers and not an individual. And so when I read it, I think that Paul is speaking to an individual and applying it that way. But I really want us to try to remember that he is writing to all of us collectively to do these things that he encourages us to do. Now, we're only going to be able to scratch the surface on these things, and really each one of them is a sermon of themselves. But as we dig into this, let's remember that it's collectively for us to encourage and hold each other accountable to. So, that's the context, and now we get into how we keep the code. How we keep the code. And, and in this passage, in the beginning, it's very clear that it starts with our conduct. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Manner of life, also translated conduct in several of your translations, is what Paul is addressing first. And in order to really understand the depth of where he's getting to, we have to know the Greek behind it. 
And if you know me, I, I, I like to get into the Greek a little bit. I don't speak Greek, but, but I think it's fun to get the deeper meaning. And here, this word is a Greek word that means to behave as a citizen. To behave as a citizen. And Paul writes this as a command. The whole church is commanded to behave as a citizen, and it's a continuous command. So over and over, we need to behave this way. This is how our conduct needs to be. And, and the root of this word is the Greek word polis, which means city. city. And a polis was the largest political unit that existed in, in Greek times. And so the people in that polis had a deep sense of pride and loyalty for their polis, for where they were citizens. These people in Philippi were citizens of Rome. And so they had a deep sense of pride in that Roman citizenship, in that polis. Today, if we would talk about this, we'd talk about our national pride, our national um, loyalty. The Olympics are starting in a couple of July, a couple weeks now, months, soon, starting soon. And, and I don't know about you, but, but during the Olympics, if there's an American competing in an event and it's on television, I am going to watch that event. Why? It doesn't really matter if it's synchronized swimming or rhythmic gymnastics or all those other crazy events that they have. If, if there's an American competing, I want to see if they're going to win because I have pride in my polis in the United States. And so Paul is really getting to this point with the people in Philippi who take great pride in all of the rights and privileges that they have as Roman citizens. But he's reminding them that first and foremost, you are a citizen of heaven. First and foremost, you are a citizen of heaven. And despite the fact that heaven might feel so far away, you still need to govern yourself accordingly. They would have understood this. They were Roman citizens 800 miles away from Rome. And so despite the great distance, they still behaved as if they were Italians. And so Paul is really getting to this point here. We need to behave as citizens. In fact, he would later remind them of this in chapter 3, verse 20, when he said, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is encouraging them to live as citizens. But, but he doesn't just say only behave as citizens of the gospel of Christ. He says, behave as worthy citizens of the gospel of Christ. Worthy citizens of the gospel of Christ. How many here have seen the movie Saving Private Ryan? A lot of us. It's, it's a good movie. Um, for those of you who haven't seen it, it tells the story of uh, four brothers, three of which have been killed. And so the United States Army says, we've got to get the fourth guy out because he's the only one left to take care of his mom. His mom was a widow. Father had died. And so they assemble uh, a crack team of soldiers to go and save Private Ryan. There's the name of the movie, right? And so as Tom Hanks, in all his daring do, leads the soldiers to go and save Private Ryan, he has to fight through all kinds of Germans and all kinds of fun stuff. And he gets there and convinces Ryan to come back with him. But Ryan says, okay, I'm only going to go after my unit is relieved. I'm not going to abandon them. Of course, things never go that easy, and the Germans attack before the reinforcements can arrive. 
And so as they fight back the Germans, many of the men who were sent to save Private Ryan themselves die. And in the climactic scene of the movie, as Tom Hanks' character is sitting there with his life ebbing away, and Ryan comes and talks to him after they've defeated the Germans, Tom Hanks looks up to him and he says, Earn it. Earn this. Earn this privilege that you have that these men have sacrificed for you. We are all just like Private Ryan. Every one of us has been given a great gift by the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross for us. Without his sacrifice, we would be dead. We would be dead. And so what Paul is telling the Philippian church here is to live a life that is worthy of that sacrifice. Not that we can earn that in any way, not that we earn the sacrifice, but that our lives should live up to that sacrifice. This, this Greek word is a word that meant to put something on a scale and measure it to see if it measured up. And so we need to live lives that measure up to the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And so if we remember this, it really is going to give us an eternal perspective on things. It's going to help us to live in a way where we're not focused on the here and now, but on the things to come. And this is what Paul is getting at in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18 when he wrote, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We have to have an eternal perspective. We have to recognize that our citizenship is in heaven and live lives that are worthy of that as we keep the code. But we see that Paul continues on and that he didn't merely want the church to live this way when they were by themselves or with other Christians, but at all times. In a word, Paul says that you have to keep the code with consistency. Consistency. Let's read it again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. About a year ago, I was driving in a car going to a prayer meeting. And I was driving with a man who I highly respect, Jack Templeton. And for those of you who know Jack, he's, he's, very, he's a straight-laced guy. He's a building inspector, right? He's all about sticking to the rules and, and keeping the code. And as I was driving through downtown Easton with Jack, we saw to our chagrin that the circle was closed off and they were diverting traffic to the side streets. Now, any of you who have gone through the circle when it's closed off know that it's a pain in the butt to get around there, right? It, it's gridlock. And so we looked at each other and we were like, man, we're going to be late for our prayer meeting. And so as we were sitting there waiting in traffic, both of us, I think, kind of at the same time recognized this little side street that just happened to be right next to us. And as we looked at each other and kind of gave knowing glances, we also recognized that it was a one-way street. <laughs> and it was going the wrong way. And so I thought to myself, oh, well, that, it, it would get us out of here, but we can't, you know, we can't do that. We can't 
And I looked over at Jack, and Jack was saying, take the street. <laughs> and so who am I to argue with Jack, right? <laughs> if my elder is telling me it's appropriate to go down a one-way street, I am there, okay? <laughs> and so we very gingerly turn down the one-way street, and we get to the top of the road, make a left back, appropriately going the right way, go down to the bottom of the hill, and the light there just so happens to go from yellow to red. And I figure, well, we've already gone down a one-way street. Why stop now? <laughs> and so I may have driven through the red light. And as we're driving, Jack and I are kind of chuckling, ha, 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 all those suckers stuck in traffic. And then the lights go off behind us. And Jack looks at me and he says, do you think it's the police? <laughs> and I say, no, Jack, it's probably the ice cream man. Who else would it be? <laughs> now, if, if I saw the cop there watching that one-way street, watching that light, would I have driven down that street? No, I'm not a fool most of the time. This is the point that Paul is getting to here, okay? That regardless of who is watching, regardless of whether Paul is there, or the pastor is there, or your elder is there giving you bad instruction, <laughs> you need to do the right thing. You need to live consistently no matter what. And this is what Paul is getting at later on in this letter when he writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We have to make every effort to live consistently. If we don't, you can see, you should see behind me, that we are just lying to ourselves, we're lying to our brothers and sisters who are watching us, and we're lying to God. Paul is reminding them, look, God is always watching. He's always there with you. You're never pulling a fast one on him. He's always going to be there. And so we have to live consistently. I, I think back to my time in college and law school, and this is something that I think back on and kick myself over because I was an inconsistent Christian. Now, it wasn't that I was partying or sleeping around or doing bad stuff. The problem was that I wasn't consistently doing the things that I know I should be doing. And this is something that I think the watching world sees and gets turned off by by Christians because of their inconsistent life. It's not so much that we behave badly it's that we don't behave the way we should behave on a consistent basis. And then people say, look, what are, he's just like me. He's no different. I think back in college and I, I just think, what a missed opportunity. Friends, we can't be a church that misses the opportunities that God puts in front of us because of our inconsistent living. We have to consistently keep the code. 
And though we recognize that it's the Lord who enables us to keep the code, that's what that passage said, it's the Lord who works through you to will and to work for his good pleasure, we also recognize that collectively we have to collaborate with one another to keep the code. Keeping the code requires collaboration. So that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Here Paul describes for us two ways in which we have to collaborate with one another. By standing firm and by striving forward. Now, the word here for standing firm is a word that means to persevere or endure. And it often referred to a Greek legion or a Roman legion that was standing side by side with one another waiting for the attack to come with their shields at the ready and their weapons at the ready. They were ready to stand for, firm and endure the attack. The picture up there for you to see. And so, as we go into battle together, we have to remember this. We have to remember that we must stand firm with one another. Let's remind ourselves right here that Paul is addressing the entire church. This is one of those things that I think we have a tendency to think, okay, I have to persevere. That's true, but we have to persevere together. If there's someone in our congregation who's hurting, we have to come alongside them and lift them up and stand firm with them. If there's someone in our congregation who is going through hardship or trouble or temptation or whatever the case may be, we have to stand firm with them to endure that attack. This was one of Paul's favorite themes in his writings. He, he wrote about it all the time. In, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, he wrote, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. In Galatians 5.1, he wrote, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. There are many more examples in scriptures, but the point is that we have to be prepared to stand firm with one another and face the attack together. I think this is what the writer of Hebrews is getting at in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 when he says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. There's in a nutshell the code, right? Loving God, loving your neighbor. Not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's why Paul says here we have to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind. We have to be united. We have to encourage one another. I don't, I don't care how tough you think you are, you're not going to be able to do it on your own. You will fail. You will fall. You won't be able to do it. We have to have one another. As David wrote in Psalm 133.1, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. We have to be united. But it's not just about standing firm and enduring the attack. It's also striving forward and taking the attack to the enemy. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He says we have to strive forward side by side with one another. And this Greek word is also interesting. It's sunathleo. And it means to work together as a team 
to achieve a common goal, to achieve victory. The, the, it's a compound word. The second word, athleo, is the word we get our word athletics or athlete from. And, and so we need to come together as, as a team, each one playing our part, each having our own position to win the prize. Elsewhere in Scripture, Paul often wrote about a body and how Christ is the head and each one of us are different body parts. And he talks about this in, in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4. And, and so here he's, using, he's, he's giving us a different picture. He's giving us the picture of a sports team working together. So, so let me try to pull this whole point together with a, with a sports analogy. Um, if anyone follows football... They've probably heard it said that the best teams are the teams that are both offensively and defensively talented, the teams that are well-balanced. And so this last football season, we had a great example of that. We had teams that were exceptional offensively and could score lots of points but couldn't defend. Conversely, we had teams that were very strong defensively but couldn't score points. And then we had those teams that had the superstars, that had the superstars that would try to do everything on their own but couldn't play together as a team. Philadelphia Eagles. <laughs> but none of those teams, none of the teams who were good offensively, defensively, or filled with the superstars won the prize. The team that won the prize was the New York Giants. They knew how to stand firm and defend. And they knew how to strive forward and win the game. And they knew how to play united as a team, not with any superstars leading the way, but they had to play united as a team. Brothers and sisters, we have to be like the New York Giants. <laughs> we have to be able to stand firm and strive and play united. If we don't collaborate that way, we won't be able to keep the code. We will fail. This is going to be especially true as we go down and launch our multi-siting and expand our ministries. If each of us here who have different gifts and talents and abilities don't get into the proper position to use them, it's not going to work. We all have to be working together to make this work, bringing the gifts and talents that the Lord's given us. Keeping the code requires collaboration. But Paul continues on. He says that keeping the code also requires courage. Keeping the code requires courage. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Fear is one of the primary ways that Satan stops us in our tracks. That Satan stops us from moving into the work that he has for us to do. Again, let's remind ourselves that Paul is addressing the congregation. And he's saying, look, church, you can't be overcome with fear. You must not be frightened by anything, by anything at all. And this word that he uses here for frightened is found nowhere else in the New Testament. 
Nowhere else. And it means to be so afraid as to panic. And it was used to refer to a stampede of wild animals that were frightened and were running around without any sense of anything whatsoever, just panicking, like chickens with their heads cut off. We can't behave like a wild stampede when difficult situations arrive. When things go wrong, and things will go wrong, we have to stay calm, trusting that the Lord will see it through and having faith that we will overcome the obstacle. We're told to fear not in Scripture over 360 times. It's something that Jesus said all the time, Paul preached all the time, the Old Testament tells us God encouraged the people of Israel all the time to fear not, fear not. In Deuteronomy 31.6, the Lord said, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. In 2 Timothy 1.7, one of my favorite verses, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control or, or, or sound mind. We are not to be afraid. Now, we're to fear the Lord, but that's where our fear ends. That's it. We fear nothing else. We walk courageously into the things that the Lord would have us do. Now, I know that as we launch Second Street, the first way Satan's going to come against us is in our minds and make us have fear and worry and anxiety over how it's going to work out, what's going to happen. Is this multi-site approach really the right way to go about doing this? Is the building going to be ready in time? Or are we going to be able to afford everything? Is that guy who's talking up there really going to be the campus pastor of that place? We, that scares us, right? We, we get afraid when we think of this, these, these things. And so we have to act with courage. Because Paul tells us here that when we have courage that that is a sign to our enemies of their destruction. And not only of their destruction, but of our salvation as well. When we can overcome the fear and act courageously, the enemy knows they got no shot. They're done. And so courage, born from a deep faith and trust in the Lord, is absolutely essential to keeping the code. And finally, Paul finishes up this chapter by telling us that if we want to keep the code, we have to remember that there will be conflict. There will be conflict and there will be suffering. He writes, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So the first thing that Paul says is, look, when I got to you in Philippi, remember what happened to me? First, I had to face down a demon-possessed girl, and then after I cast the demon out of her, then they beat me and threw me in prison, and guess what? I'm still in prison now. And so he's reminding them of the conflict and suffering that they're going to face. And this is something that I think the church in the United States all too often forgets that when you become a Christian, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden everything's going to be easy and we're going to just going to prosper all over the place. 
That is a lie. Read scripture. It tells us very clearly that if we become Christians, it's not an easy path. The path is narrow. The path is hard. We will face hardship. We will face trials. We will face conflict. There is an enemy who is actively working against us to keep us from moving into the things the Lord has us to do. Paul reminds his readers in Ephesus of this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, when he says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Satan is our foe. And together with our own fleshly desires and all the temptations that are out there in this world, we are going to face conflict. This can't be something that surprises us. We can't, we can't be caught off guard when it happens. This is what Peter is getting at in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, when he writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. We are going to face conflict when we are moving into the thing the Lord has for us to do. I was reminded of this very point last night. <laughs> After I kissed my wife and my kids to come and preach Saturday night service, <clears throat> unbeknownst to me, my kids were out playing out back in the woods. And they were climbing trees, trees that they've climbed hundreds of times before. And my Jackson was climbing a tree on a branch that he's been on who knows how many times. And the branch broke. And Jackson fell out of the tree and smashed his head against a rock. That happened just before I was set to come up here and preach. Now, my wife could have panicked. My wife could have called me and said, Hey, you got to come home. You gotta, we have to go to the hospital. Thankfully, the Lord answered her immediate prayers, and Scott and Zariah Bennett showed up and helped <laughs> carry the situation through to completion. And the Lord, the Lord delivered. But what was happening there? I believe, and I know Leslie firmly believes, that Satan was coming against us in that moment and causing conflict, causing distraction, trying to get us to take our eye off the work that the Lord had prepared for me to do. Thankfully, Jackson's okay. We got his head glued up and it's as hard as ever. <laughs> <laughs> the point is that those things are going to happen. There will be conflict. There will be suffering and hardship, and we can't be surprised when it happens. We must persevere and stand strong together and overcome that. There was a congregation that really reminds me a lot of ourselves all those years ago that had a calling just like ours to preach the gospel to its city and the surrounding areas. Now, it faced conflict. There was persecution. There was hardship. But they persevered, and they endured, and they kept the code by remembering where their citizenship lied and lived lives worthy of that, living consistently 
through all of those things, collaborating with one another to stand firm and strive forward, united in perseverance, courageously coming against the conflict that Satan and the world and their own flesh threw against them. And thousands came to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior because they kept the code. Even those who had persecuted them and come against them before. And as that group of faithful believers in the city of Jerusalem continued fighting, Acts chapter 17 verse 6 tells us that they turned their world upside down. They turned their world upside down. Now, those believers in the early church had the same commission that we do, to go and spread the gospel of Christ. They had the same Lord and Savior that we do. And they had the same Holy Spirit empowering them and controlling them that we do. Do we believe that we can turn the Lehigh Valley upside down? Do we believe that we can see thousands come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? Friends, I believe that God is calling us to do a tremendous work here in the Lehigh Valley. And it is going to require us to give every effort to keep the code. We have to stand strong and loyal to the code of conduct that we've sworn ourselves to. Just like those Roman legionnaires back at the Battle of Philippi. We're just like them. We are fighting against a great traitor, a would-be assassin, Satan, who has seduced many of the people around us. And they far outnumber us and are in a strong position everywhere we turn. But if we remember the code and remember to be disciplined and remember our training when the attack comes, we may feel pushed back. We may feel like we're losing from time to time. But if we keep the code, we already know that we've won the war. We already know that Satan has been dealt a mortal blow by Jesus Christ. We need to be courageous and continue to win the battles between now and eternity. And so, while it would be an honor to serve you as campus pastor at 2nd Street, we have to remember that it's something that collectively we all need to do together. We all need to keep the code together. And it is my hope and my prayer and my challenge for all of us that we would remember these things that Paul was exhorting the Philippian church to and that we would all remember to keep the code. Please pray with me now. Lord God, I just thank you so much for this honor to deliver your message. Lord, I pray that you would sink it deep into our hearts. Holy Spirit, convict us where we need to be convicted to change our lives. Father, I ask that you would just help us to live out these words, that they wouldn't be just mere words, more head knowledge but instead that they would become something that informs the way we live our life every single day. Lord, I just pray for your blessing on these people. I pray that as they live out their lives this week and for every week to come, that they would be mindful of our call to love you with everything we have and to love our neighbor as you loved us. And that we as a church would keep these things in view in order to help us to do those things. 
And so, Father, I just ask that you would help us to keep the code, Lord, and that you would help us to be a bright light for you as we do that, glorifying and bringing honor to your name. Pray these things now in the name of Jesus. Amen. You are dismissed.